Well, these are statements that people think are in the Bible, but they're not. I'll give you a few of them. You might have heard them before. God helps those who help themselves. That's not in the Bible. Actually, that was taken uh, out of one of Aesop's fables. It was a moral of the story to a fable called Hercules and the Wagoner. Uh, A fellow was toting a wagon, and he got stuck in the mud, and along came Hercules, and he said, help me out. And Hercules says, no, get your shoulder under the wagon, and get out. The gods help those who help themselves. That was a Aesop fable. Uh, cleanliness is next to godliness. How many of you have heard that growing up? Cleanliness is next to godliness. It's not in the Bible. It's a good saying, but it's not in the Bible. It was uh, popular around the Victorian age with Sir Francis Bacon and John Wesley uh, during that time. Uh, God hates the sin and loves the sinner. That's not in the Bible. That is actually a loose quote from Madeira Gandhi in 19, something he wrote in 1929. That's where that came from, Gandhi. Uh, Money is the root of all evil. That is not there. That is not there. It is the love of money that is the root of all evil, not money itself. Uh, How about this phrase, this too shall pass. This too shall pass. That's not in the Bible. Uh, that came actually of a misinterpretation of a line in a, an old English poem called The Lament of Doer, uh, whereas the end of each refrain ended like this, that passed away, so may this. That's where it came from. Uh, the lion shall lie down with the lamb. Nowhere in Scripture. Isaiah says that the wolf shall lie down with the lamb, the leopard with the goat. This is nothing new. Folks have seen phrases all through the centuries that they thought were scripture. And Jesus actually quotes one of them in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. So turn your Bibles there. Let's see a phrase that Jesus used in the Sermon on the Mount that wasn't actually in the Sermon on the Mount or wasn't actually in the Bible itself. It was the phrase in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. You have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. There's no Old Testament scripture that says that. Now it does say in Leviticus that we are to love our neighbor as ourself. But the Jew added to that statement out of Exodus, and he added, you shall hate your enemy. Now, where in the world did they get an idea like that? Well, if you are told you are the chosen people of God as the Jews, what does that make the rest of the world? The not chosen people of God. It it gives you the idea that you are superior or that God loves you and not so much the non-Jew. When the Jews said this phrase, they had a very specific people group in mind. They had the non-Jew was the enemy. Anybody that was a Jew was your neighbor and you were constrained to love your fellow Jew. But any non-Jew was considered by the Jew 
as an enemy. Incredible. A prejudice and hate is nothing new. And the Jews had established it well right here. Look at Jesus' response. Verse 44. But I say unto you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Wow. Turned that on its ear, didn't it? This is probably the, the most quoted phrase in all the Sermon on the Mount, that we are to love our enemies. How is that possible? Seems a bit unnatural to me, doesn't it, you? An enemy that would do us harm to love? Maybe it would help us to understand the Greek word used in this phrase for love. Do you know Greek is the most expressive language the world has ever known? I think it's a beautiful point that the New Testament was written in Greek. There are four words for love in the New Testament. There is first the word storge. Storge love is family love. You know your family. They fuss, they fight, they scream, they scratch. But if you go against that family, what do they do? They circle the wagons. You know? You can pick your friends, but you're stuck with your family. And there is a love within families that looks ugly and weird at times and twisted, and, and yet there's love there. There's storge love within family. When somebody gets married into the family, you take them in storge love. Second of all, there's eros love, and that is the love between a maid and her lover. That is the passionate love of romance. It has more to do than just physical intimacy. It's the heat in the face you get when you meet the one that you love. It's the young boy who bumps into a pole because he's so dizzy in love he doesn't know where he's at. That feeling of of lostness that young people feel and sometimes we older people feel. I still have Eros for Karen and hopefully she has Eros for me. I know I get excited about 6.30 when it's time for her to come home. That's Eros. Then there's filial love. There's brotherly love. It's the love that we share around here, the brothers and sisters in Christ. It's my relationship to one of my brothers, Mike Roddy. We have filio love together. And then fourthly, there's, you, you, you know what it is. It's agape love. It's God's love. That's the word used for loving our enemies. I, I'm, I'm glad to know that. Because I don't have storge love for my enemies. I'm not having them over for Thanksgiving this year. That would be unnatural, wouldn't it? That'd be an awkward Thanksgiving, would it not? I certainly don't have eros for my enemies. I might have heat and passion, but it might be to strangle them rather than hug them. I definitely don't have filial love, a brotherly love, because an enemy would do you harm and... You get them too close into your circles, they'll take you out. Jesus says, doesn't say fix your enemy. He doesn't even say make your enemies your friends. 
Although Abraham Lincoln asked the good question, do we not destroy our friends, our enemies, by making them our friends? Lincoln tried that on a number of occasions. He wasn't all that successful with it, and he ended up having a lot of enemies in the end. You can't fix an enemy yourself. That takes God's work. So I'm not told to do that. I'm told to agape him or her. Now, what is that? William Barclay says that agape love is unconquerable benevolence. It is invincible goodwill. You'll see an example of God's love for all humanity in a minute. But it's the idea you don't wish them harm. You might keep them at arm's length. You might make sure there are boundaries. You might take a restraining order to keep them away from you to protect yourself and to protect them. But you have goodwill. to You want the best for them. You don't wish to ill them any harm. You know what I get from this? The idea that God wants us to be free in here from our enemies. If occasion you have an opportunity to do goodwill, by all means do it. How many of you have ever been done wrong by an enemy? And in the long, maybe a week later, a month, maybe a year later, you had an opportunity to do them wrong yourself. To get them back. To clear the ledger. To recompense them for the evil they did you. Agape love says, no, I won't do them like that. I wish they're well. Because God's love is indiscriminate. I'm going to show you how he pulls it off in just a minute. I want to read you a poem because most of our love is conditional. This poem is from David Roper's book, The Law That Sets You Free. It's called Paul's Girl. Paul's girl is rich and haughty. My girl is poor as clay. Paul's girl is young and pretty. My girl looks like a bale of hay. Paul's girl is smart and clever. My girl is dumb but good. Would I trade my girl for Paul's? You bet your life I would. That's our love. Discriminate, chosen, picking out. But God loves all humanity, and this is how He does it. Are you ready? He disconnects. No, He doesn't have to disconnect. He has always been connected and attached to His humanity, but in a healthy way. We have to detach. We have to detach from our enemies in order to love our enemies. Before we can detach, and I'll explain what I'm talking about in a minute, because this is what God does. He sees his attachment to humanity on healthy terms. We don't. Before we can detach from our enemy, we must must detach from ourselves. When we fell in sin... We became unhealthy in our attachment to ourself. My feelings, my thoughts, my right to myself, my right to be talked, spoken to in a certain way, to be treated in a certain way. I have my rights. I've attached myself to me. 
I was created to attach myself to God Almighty. This is where I was to draw my life from. But I tried to draw my life from me. Therein is the pitiful condition in our society and world, trying to draw life from the attachment to ourselves. But when I understand Christianity, that I have been crucified with Christ, and I am indebted indeed unto sin, which is the flesh within, I no longer, watch this, in last week's sermon, we were told to turn the other cheek. How do you turn the other cheek? You reckon yourself dead to the sin and flesh that wants to slap it back. How do you walk the extra mile? You understand that you have been detached from sin and flesh by the cross. How do you do those things? You understand by faith what Christianity has done. In fact, in Romans, there's a verse in Romans chapter 6, verse 11 says this. Likewise, ye also yourselves reckon yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin. But that's not enough. Jesus said it's not enough to turn the other cheek, walk the extra mile. He wants us to positively love the enemy. That's the second part, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ. I have reckoned myself dead indeed unto myself, but now I also reckon that the life of God is in me, and in so I have detached from self, my right to myself, and in doing that, now I can detach from my enemy. Now I can be free, free, from his opinion or statements or attack on me. That's what's called healthy detachment. I no longer have to defend myself, fight for myself. I can turn the other cheek because I'm free from my rights to myself. I am free. I have detached myself from the flesh and sin, from the natural me. And now I can positively love my enemy because I have detached myself from them. I do not depend. How much of our life is ruled by what our enemy thinks of us or other people? What a trap all that is. Notice Jesus' maybe this will help you. Notice Jesus' example here. He says, so that you may be sons of your father. Notice he didn't say love the enemies in order to be sons. You don't have to do a thing to be a son. But do these revealing the character that you have a heredity to your father. Your father. So that the apple hasn't fallen far from the tree. Notice what the father does in the example he gives in verse 45. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good. He is indiscriminate. Notice he sends rain on the Christian farmer and the non-Christian farmer. He sends his rain on the farmer who blesses God and he sends the same rain down the street to the farmer who curses God. You follow that? How weird would that be if only God sent the sunshine and the rain on believers? Follow you around like a little, you know, how strange would that be? 
But God doesn't love like that because agape love doesn't choose. Agape love does, watch this, it does not send, he does not send his love based on how people treat him or what they're doing in their life. He has a healthy detachment in order for him to be attached. Let me read you another poem entitled Letting Go. It takes love to let go. And you can associate the let go in the poem for detachment of people. Because that's the way we're to love other people. Not based on what they say and done to us. Not based on what they're doing at any given time. By the way, what causes God to love? For God so loved the world that he, God causes God to love. Agape love isn't a feeling. It's a choice of your attitude and will towards someone of goodwill. The author writes this. To let go does not mean I stop caring. It means that I do it for some... It means that I don't do it for someone else. To let go is not to cut myself off. It is the realization that I can't control another human being. To let go is not to enable but to allow learning from natural consequences. To let go is to admit powerlessness by means of the outcome is not in my hands. To let go is not to try to change or blame another, fix an enemy, but to make the most of myself and helping when I can. To let go is not to care for, it is to care about. To let go is not to fix, It's to be supportive. To detach or to let go is not to judge. We judge our enemy, do we not? It's not to judge, but to allow another to be a human being with all the frailties that come involved. To let go is not to be in the middle of arranging all the outcomes, but to allow others to affect their own death. Isn't that not what God does? He allows us choices and freedoms. He allows the one who cursed God, which was me for 19 years of my life, to go on doing that, still loving me, not judging me. To let go is not to be protective. It is to permit another to face reality. To let go is not to deny, but to accept To let go is not to nag and scold and argue, but instead to search out my own shortcomings and correct them. And lastly, to let go is not to adjust everything to my desires, to get the enemy where I want them, put them down, but to take each day as it comes and to cherish those days myself. So you notice... When God loves, he has, in a sense, detached himself from what those people do and what they say about him. And he chooses in benevolence to to will his goodwill and still bless them. That is how you love your enemy. You detach yourself, first of all, from yourself by reckoning yourself to be dead indeed unto sin. I can really turn the other cheek when I do that. And secondly, because I've detached myself from myself, I detached myself from my enemy. They had no power over me. 
And now I have the power of God and the life of God to love them. Not the first three kinds of love, but agape love. Verse 47, uh, verse 46. And if you, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? This is not just the reward from God. This is your reward that you get simply by being free to love those who hate you and want to do you harm. And again, it's not the idea that, that we place ourselves in the position of danger. I know it's really hard to believe, but we all have enemies, do we not? Those who would do us harm. We don't put ourselves in a place where they can hurt us. We set up the boundaries. Sometimes we discipline if we have to, if we're a boss over a, 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 an employee, a father over a family. Sometimes there's discipline. That's all agape love. The reward is being free. Notice it goes on. Do not even the tax collectors do the same. Now this interests me because Matthew's a tax collector And when he writes this, he writes a tax collector. Luke, who's a doctor, writes a publican. I just find that fascinating when the two different men wrote this. You know, Luke says publican and Matthew says tax collector. Kind of slams his own occupation. Verse 47. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? You're doing nothing more. Jesus said, do not even the Gentiles do the same? This is an indictment. We have the love of God, believer. We have the ability to love our enemies. Say, you love those who love you? Anybody can do that. But when you love the enemy with agape love... You are displaying a supernatural life that cannot be explained by you. And in doing so, you portray that you are the sons of your father. The sons of your father, which is in heaven. Let's finish the chapter. Notice he says, do not even the Gentiles do the same. Verse 48, you therefore must be perfect. How perfect? What's the standard? Are you ready? As your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the ultimate Debbie Downer statement in the whole sermon, is it not? What's the standard? I was at the fair last week, uh, Friday night with all the grandkids, well, four out of five, and uh, I wanted to take them to an auction and see an auction. And so they had one at 7 o'clock. And so we funneled them all in. And the kids were there in the stands. And, the, you know, they brought the first big bull in, and uh, big boy. And they started the bidding at $1.50, which interests me. I thought that's pretty low to start the bidding at $1.50 for a bull. We're going to be here all night. And so he, two, 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 sold for two seventy five. The kids behind me are getting all excited because they can buy a bull for three bucks. You know, they're, they're. 
The guy behind us, I was confused. I didn't know what they were talking about. And the guy, guy slid down behind us. He said, that's 275 a pound. I said, oh. He said, that, that bull sold for a little under $5,000. The guy held up four fingers saying, I'll, I'll give you $4 a pound because that's more reasonable. And so, uh, so we got talking about the bull, and one of the kids asked, what happens to the bulls now? I said, well, I don't, you know, I, and so I asked the guy behind him, and there are three sitting there, you know, and he kind of leans down, and he said, well, what they do is they take him to slaughter. And uh, they fill up the freezer, the guy who bought it. Now, this is so funny. I watched all three of them in the line. All of a sudden, they realized all together what ha- was going to happen, and literally all their faces were like, <laughs> I mean, Landon's welling up with tears, you know, and and they said, Pop, I think we, we want to go ride the rides. When you realize what Jesus is saying here, all of our faces, I mean, just let, let, it, let it bomb down like a torpedo and explode inside of you. He demands perfection. Why would he do that? Who can love like him? I can't send the rain. I can't fix it. I can't bless. Or can I? Or can I? G. Campbell Morgan, in closing this section in his commentary, writes this. He says, Thank God that we know him not only or first as lawgiver, but first as our redeemer. This is how it happens. We know him first as our redeemer who blots out the sins of our past by blood, communicating new power by resurrection and coming with us through all these human interrelationships and enabling us to fulfill them. There it is. Only by the life and power of God can we love our enemies. Period. He is not only our lawgiver, he is more than our teacher. If he cannot come in and enable us to do this thing, it cannot be done. He would not give us this indictment, this teaching, this without enabling us to do it. Not to do that would be frustrating to us. Augustine prayed a good prayer when he prayed, Lord, thou do it first, and then I will follow. Lord, you do all the work by grace, and then I'll follow. So love your enemies, brother, sister. Maybe you don't have any. If you live long enough, you got some. Some of them live under your own roof, maybe. Some of them are in your neighborhood. Some of them are at work. Some of them have passed long ago, and, but they're still out there. They could hurt you. Three things I want to give you. Number one is this. To love your enemies is to be free from guilt. Where does guilt come in? Well, you might have done something to create an enemy. Enemies just don't pop on the scene, you know. There's problems. There's difficulties. There are things you might have said, things you might have done. You might have had a part, forgive me, in creating the enemy of your life. To love them is to be free from the guilt, free from the fear, free from them living here. Nowhere does it say to fix your enemies 
Make your enemies your friends. That's the work of God. But when you have nothing ill against them, if you, if you can meet them and see them and have nothing that you want to hate them or hurt them, you have a chance to hurt them, you don't, you're free. that beautiful? That's a beautiful way to live. God wants us to be free because I can't control the enemies of my life. I can. They're doing their deal. I've got to do what God's called me to do. Number two. To love your enemies is to be delivered from the fight with them. You know, it takes two to tango. You know that. You know how to tango? You know how to tango? Karen, come on up. Let's, let's tango together. I don't know how to tango. But I do know it takes two. Do you know that? We maintain the enemies of our life by continuing the fight and struggle. Even though maybe it's never a physical struggle, it's there, see? But to love them. Isn't it just ignore them? Put them in a cage, you know, just, just isolate them. God says, wish them goodwill. Inconquerable love. We're delivered from the fight. It's good not to be in a fight, isn't it? I'm a lover, not a fighter. It hurts too much to to fight. Number three, and we're done. To love your enemies is to reveal your sonship. We We are never more like God than when God gives you the victory to love your enemies. We're not the most like God when we preach and sing and shout hallelujah and raise our hands. We're not the most like God when we can quote a thousand different verses and know what they mean. Who cares? We are most like love. We are most like God. When he is channeling his love through us and we are free from all men. We are absolutely free to love all men. 